Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Chris Millington. Dr. Millington is a reader in modern European history at Manchester Metropolitan University in the United Kingdom. He is the author of five books on 20th century France, notably Fighting for France, Violence in Interwar French Politics, and A History of Fascism in France. His sixth book, Massacre à Clichy, is the first to investigate the anti-fascist Clichy riot of March 1937 and will be published in French in 2021. He is currently working on terrorism in interwar and wartime France. Today we are discussing his book, France in the Second World War, Collaboration, Resistance, Holocaust, Empire. This helpful book is perfect for a general reader wanting to know about France during World War II, covering all the major topics from the defeat to liberation to its memory. At $30 for paperback, it is far cheaper than most textbooks and certainly better written. Please enjoy. Thank you very much for being on the program, Dr. Millington. What led you to write a book on France during World War II? Well, I, I think I'm better known, actually, uh, for my work on interwar France. But I don't really see myself as an interwar historian. I tend to see myself as a, a historian of 20th century France. And it, this is a subject that I've taught for 10 years now, and I wanted to write something that was relatively uh, succinct as an overview. So it was originally intended with with my students in mind, a book that students could easily use. Now, of course, there's lots of books out there on France and the Second World War, so broad overviews of the period, like by, by historians such as Julian Jackson and, and Robert Gilday, which are genuinely classics in the field, but they're not necessarily directed at the average student reader who's looking for an introduction to, to the topic. So what I wanted to do was produce a shorter work than those and also synthesize and integrate work from other historians into, into this overview. So work by historians like Hannah Diamond and, and Miranda Pollard on, on women and gender and um, work on the empire too, uh, particularly by uh, historians like Eric Jennings. So it was with my students in mind that I wanted to write this and provide them with a short book and an up-to-date book as well, because the, these overviews that I've mentioned don't tend to address things like the French empire, purely because they were written before the, uh, the, the flourishing of study into the French empire. So we can't really blame them for, for not addressing it. But I wanted to bring a, a more up-to-date historiographical review of the subject to, to the students I was teaching. And also, 
I think I thought it would be fun. <laughs> I, I enjoy writing, and uh, I did this kind of in spare moments that I had while I was doing my my current research. So um, I learned a lot uh, through reading the work of other historians without having to do some of the more tedious archival uh, research myself. So I learned a lot, and uh, and I enjoyed it. Well, I enjoy writing, just not editing. So oh, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you at least got a bit of the fun part. And I should note for our listeners that this book that we are talking about is much more accessible to a general reader. Sometimes I will have a book that is extremely specialized for uh, historians, but yours does a good work of covering all the main aspects of World War II and presenting it in such a well-written way that I think everyone can get a grasp of it. So I recommend people not just listen to this interview, but you know, if you need a if you need a good Christmas gift, you know what's better than World War II. So jumping into that. Virtually every part of World War II and France is controversial for different reasons. So how about we start at the beginning, which is why was France defeated by Germany in six weeks? Can you present some of the reasons that people claimed France was defeated? And how did pre-war events play into the narratives? Yes, well, I like to tell my students that the the Allies lost the Battle of France for the simple reason that they put their men in the wrong place. Now, of course, it's a bit more complicated than that, but we can't escape the fact that the battle was lost on the battlefield itself and not, as uh, as some at the time claimed, and, and as you've hinted at, because of pre-war crisis. Now, if we if we look at the balance of forces between the Allies and the Germans, and I say the Allies because I want us to remember it's not just the French uh, who are defeated, it's uh, the, the other Western European nations and Britain as well. So the British Empire. So that's another thing we need to remember about the Battle of France. It's a clash of empires. It's not just France, the country, losing to, to Germany. But if we look at the, the balance of forces, the two sides were relatively even. Now, of course, we have the impression that the, the Nazi Blitzkrieg steamrolled the French into submission because it only took six weeks. This is just one of the myths of the Battle of France that I think requires revision. It, it was actually an idea propagated after the defeat by the Germans and the Allies in order to explain such a surprise outcome. Um, so the Germans heralded, heralded this great blitzkrieg strategy while the Allies argued, well, the Germans must have been ter terribly superior to us because look what happened. But the, the Nazi victory was essentially, I think, a gamble that paid off. So, so Allied commanders planned to fight the Nazi invasion in the north, in, in Belgium, because the, the French did not want to repeat the experience of the First World War in northeast France. And so this is where they put the bulk of their forces and the best trained and best equipped men. In the south, there was the protection of the Maginot Line. So this is a series of forts designed to both to defend France, but we shouldn't forget that the Maginot Line was also intended to support infantry attacks as well. And below that was the Ardennes region that was considered to be unpassable because of its difficult terrain. Now, unfortunately, this is where the Germans struck. And so the situation we have in 1940 is that the, the invasion south 
Through the Ardennes, these huge numbers of elite German soldiers facing poor French reservists who were quickly overwhelmed. And once the Germans had broken through the Allied lines, they made straight for the Channel to encircle the Allied armies. And it quickly transpired that Paris and London had had no plan B. This caused paralysis in in the high command. Um, And there's a an account of uh, General Georges, who's the commander of the French land forces, when he hears that the Germans have broken through the line, he collapses into his armchair and and bursts into tears um, because he's so stunned uh, and does not know what what to do next. Um, so, So I don't think we can underestimate the shock of the defeat. And it's for that reason that people at the time looked to the pre-war era. So they looked to the Third Republic because it was thought that some a defeat that was so complete and so stunning had to have had a deeper reason other than just being outfought on the battlefield. So opponents of the Third Republic in 1940 argue, well, the Republic did not rearm him enough. There was too much political division. Politicians put their own interests before those of France. And there was the uh, belief in a general moral decay and decline that seemed to have begun in the 1920s and it had come to its ultimate uh, outcome in the defeat to Nazi Germany. These are reasons that are offered at the time in 1940 to explain the defeat and um, a, a really key primary source for looking at these, uh, these, this contemporary explanation is Mark Bloch's uh, strange defeat. So Bloch was a very famous historian who wrote this account of the defeat of France, and it's a real indictment of everyone in French society, social groups, social classes, politicians, civilians. No one escapes Bloch's anger. But Bloch is perfect for illustrating what people at the time thought and I think that his the reasons he gives and the reason that these reasons that people gave in 1940 for the defeat, they better explain what came next. They, they better explain the Vichy regime rather than explaining the military collapse itself. So on that note, let's talk about how Vichy actually came into being. How did this government get set up? Well, one thing we should be clear about is that the establishment of an authoritarian regime like Vichy was not a requirement of Nazi Germany. And in fact, if we look at the case of Denmark, for example, there was some semblance of parliamentary democracy was allowed to continue under the the occupation. And there are even elections in, in Denmark during the occupation in which the Danish Nazi party is is trounced. The Nazis tended to want to avoid putting homegrown fascists in charge of the occupied territories purely because they wanted these countries to remain quiet. They didn't want extreme nationalists running these governments who who they hoped to collaborate with. Now, in France, we could argue that the Third Republic perhaps could have continued, but the certainly with the perhaps the approval uh, of the Nazis. But the defeat had so discredited the Third Republic. Um, and, and as I've explained the, behind the reasons for this, the, the Republic was seen to be a rotten regime, not only in 1940, but there was huge anti-parliamentary movement 
against the Republic in the, in the 1930s, both from the left and the right. And in, in 1940, it was seen as necessary to get rid of the Republic, that French resurrection and revival could only come with a new regime. And so um, what happens is the, the Parliament, or, or actually it's the National Assembly of the Third Republic, so the, the, the Chamber of Deputies, the Lower House of Parliament and the Senate, the Upper House of Parliament, meet uh, in a National Assembly gathering at, at Vichy and they vote to end the Third Republic. So they, they vote democracy out of existence. Now, it's not a full complement of parliamentarians because the communists are not there. They've been outlawed and there were a number of parliamentarians who fled. But nevertheless, there are still hundreds of French members of parliament and the Senate who vote the Republic out of existence and choose to concentrate power in the hands of Marshal Philippe uh, Pétain. So Pétain was the last prime minister of the Third Republic, and he revises the constitution to found uh, the Vichy regime. So effectively, it, it's a, it's often described as a suicide by the Republic, putting Vichy in place. But I think the key thing to remember is it was not a requirement. This was a French decision to do this. So let's talk about Vichy itself. I think one of the most fascinating parts of your book is how it wasn't just one thing. And you talk about how it changes depending on the different ministers involved. Can you explain what you mean by this and how it changed over time? Yes, um, I think, uh, well, be, before addressing how it changes, so I, I suppose we, I, I should say there is one element of continuity to Vichy and that is Peyton, who, who is uh, head, head of state, head of the regime. He's a much loved figure in, in France. He is uh, kind of seen as uh, the embodiment of the French national interest because he is a, a great hero of the First World War. He's known as the Victor of Verdun. He uh, turned the, the war around for the French, it's thought. And he's also a grandfatherly figure, so he's seen as this saviour of the nation, um, someone who could put right what the Republic uh, had had done wrong. And that's why lots of people turn to him as a comforting kind of icon or symbol uh, in 1940. And he remains popular throughout the, the Second World War. So even in the final days of Vichy in summer 1944, he can still draw large crowds to, to, to his visits uh, across France. However, the, the, the regime below him so his ministers um and the cabinet seems to be in a, a state of flux throughout throughout the war there are there are two things that i think we need to consider when we're thinking about these different vichys firstly uh, geography and secondly chronology so so firstly geography will Vichy France is the convenient shorthand to refer to France, the whole country throughout the Second World War. But the, the country was actually divided into zones. So the North Zone uh, and the Atlantic coastline, that was the, the German occupied part. So there were German agencies and troops there. In the South, that was where the Germans went. This is where Vichy was, so the, the, the new French capital. 
And we also have other zones as well. So there's an annex zone taken by Germany. There's an Italian zone um, occupied by uh, Italy. Um, and so when we talk about Vichy, we ha sometimes we have to ask, well, where are you referring to? Which which Vichy, which part of Vichy do you mean? Because things were different in in these zones. The second point I mentioned was was chronology. So. It's important to distinguish between different phases in the regime, and this follows the, the development of the war. So as I said, although Marshal Peyton was, was head of the, the regime for the whole period, the man in charge of the government, so, so the prime minister, or it, he was called the deputy prime minister, changed on several occasions. And with these changes in personnel, the priorities of the regime changed. So we can we can talk about there being multiple Vichy's. So in the first instance, uh, the, the first main government is under Pierre Laval, who is uh, a former parliamentarian. He's actually a former prime minister of the Third Republic, but he's absolutely central to the, the suicide of the Republic in 1940. He loses his job in December 1940 because... Peyton and Laval don't really get on with each other. Uh, Peyton doesn't like how much of a, a pol typical politician Laval is. And uh, Laval isn't very successful at winning the year of the Germans at this time. So, so Laval is gotten rid of and he's replaced by Admiral Darla, um, who really pursues collaboration to the point of military collaboration with Germany and repression as well. So it's under Darla that special courts are set up to prosecute resistors for terrorism uh, and the repression really ramps up. Now, Darlan himself falls in April 1942 because he hasn't won the ear of the Germans and Laval is invited back uh, this time as head of government and uh, he he really holds all the cards at this time. Peyton recedes into the background and Laval takes over and appoints his own men. And then we have the final Vichy, which is in 1944, the sharp end of the occupation, when more and more fascists are appointed to government. Um, now, some of these changes are dictated by conditions in France. So, as I've said, the, the failure to win the ear, ear of the occupier. Um, some of them are dictated by other developments in, in the war. So the, the whole country is occupied in November 1942 when the Allies take North Africa. So I think we, I, what I hope to communicate in the book is that there are lots of different parts of Vichy in terms of geography and chronology. And when we talk about Vichy, we have to be very specific about when and where are we talking about. One major purpose of your book is to expand the war beyond just metropolitan France and explore its global dimension can you explain how the fall of France and the rise of Vichy affected the various parts of the empire? Yes, well, I, I really wanted to get across uh, the point that the effects of what happened to France in 1940 uh, and beyond were not simply confined to the mainland, uh, the mainland. There were global ramifications to the defeat. And Vichy's project for what it called the National Revolution, so this idea of trying to revive France wholesale after the defeat, this was implemented throughout the world. So I think on the one hand, 
we have to take this into account because France was an empire of 110 million people. Um, it, it ruled approximately 5% of, of the world's population. Um, I think also I want to give France due importance in the Second World War too, so to, to communicate to the reader that you know we should care about France because there were global implications what happened uh, to France during the Second World War. Now, there are historians who've explored this since uh, 2000, so historians such as Eric Jennings and Jacques Cantier have explored this in detail. And I wanted to put this scholarship into an updated history of the Second World War. Um, And I also wanted to bring to the fore the fact that what happened in France and what happened at Vichy, uh, it, it had an impact on territories thousands of miles away. So, for example, if we if we think of the fall of France in 1940, we generally confine ourselves to the months of May and June 1940 and the Western Front. But if we take a global approach, we can see that it was actually Japan that was the last country to occupy a French territory in 1940. So Japan moved to occupy part of French Indochina in September 1940, leading the French governor, uh, who's called Jean de Coup, to uh, negotiate an agreement with Tokyo to allow Japanese troops to, to remain. And in a similar vein, Indochina was still occupied long after the liberation of the French mainland in 1944, because Japan took the whole territory in 1945. And this led to terrible massacres of French soldiers and the uh, awful conditions of incarceration in Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps in Indochina. Now, I think the the empire is also important because we do see there was a global impact uh, or, or we see the global impact of the Vichy regime because the empire was so prominent in Vichy's propaganda. This is quite simple to explain because the the empire was a symbol of French prestige at a time when there was not much French prestige to go around. Um, But it was also a keystone in the project to renew France. And this meant that laws that were passed in Vichy were applied overseas. So, for example, on the island of uh, La Réunion, which is the colony that lay farthest from France, We have 33 civil servants losing their jobs when the Metropolitan Regime introduced new laws on naturalisation in July 1940. In Madagascar, the government resorted to virtual slavery to provide a cheap workforce for European bosses. And in colonies and territories that were cut off from France by the war, such as Guadeloupe, the, the regime's emphasis on what's it called, the return to the soil, so the emphasis on uh, the noble peasant farmer. This was transmuted in the colonies into a drive for autarky, which was often disastrous and led to near famine in these areas. So I think if we look at the empire, it shows that there were ramifications for indigenous peoples across the globe. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, 
with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Well, thank you for that. I think so often we don't think of France, the world system, and instead think of France just the nation state. But of course, this was such an important part of France abroad. So now let's talk about everyone's favorite part of French World War II, resistance. As you explain, there were numerous different kinds of resistance to Vichy, which include the Free French Forces, many internal resistance groups, and numerous divisions within those. Can you explain all the various resistance going on and why they weren't united? Well, it's a huge question, so I'll uh, I'll try to I'll try to be as brief uh, as possible. I think the the st- the real starting point is the idea of a, a, a French resistance or a French resistance. Uh, the first thing we can say is that it was not totally French. So there was a, a diverse group of people involved in both the the resistance in France and the Free French outside France. So these are non-French participants. Some of them are non-Europeans and non-whites. Recently, a historian Ludivine Brock has has looked at non-white resistors uh, in France. Uh, So there were several thousand non-French Europeans, and there were also uh, tens of thousands of colonial subjects in the free French outside France. And there were thousands more around the world who supported the free French, both morally and financially. So we have to qualify the Frenchness of this resistance. We also have to allow for the fact that there was no, or that we can't talk of the resistance because it was so diverse uh, and uh, to some extent so disunited. So if we look at this in more detail on the mo- on the most general level, we can say that there were two resistances. There was the external and the internal. So the external resistance was the Free French, uh, perhaps uh, this is the type of resistance best known outside France, and it was led by Charles de Gaulle. So the Free French were founded on uh, specifically on the, the 18th of June 1940, when de Gaulle made an appeal on the BBC for the French to, to continue fighting the war. He said the battle has been lost, but the war continues. Now, Relatively few people actually heard this broadcast, and this is emblematic of the position of the Free French in the early years of the war. They are in a position of relative weakness. So by September 1940, de Gaulle has only attracted about 2,000 people from France 
to his his English base uh, in London. Um, certainly no one of, of note has joined uh, de Gaulle. And de Gaulle himself is not really a person of note in, in France. He, he had entered the last government of the Third Republic, uh, or one of the last governments, but people didn't really know who he was. Nevertheless, in June 1940, Winston Churchill recognises de Gaulle as leader of all the French who oppose the occupation. And in August 1940, Churchill grants financial and military aid to the movement. So there, there are some positives to the Free French at this time. Some, some They have some aces up their sleeve. They have an air force. They have a navy. And they do win some small victories. But we have to admit that until the midpoint of the war, so November 1942, they struggle to win followers. They struggle to recruit. Now, for much of the war, their greatest asset is actually in Central Africa. So we, we all think of de Gaulle as being based in London, talking on the BBC um, and uh, be, being great allies with Churchill. But actually, it's Africa that provides the greatest source of power for the Free French um, in, in this equ French Equatorial Africa, which uh, declares its loyalty to de Gaulle in August 1940. And that tells us, I think, again, about the diversity of the resistance. So the involvement of different nationalities and colonial troops in, in the Free French. On the subject of diversity, we can't ignore that there were women also in the Free French. There were opportunities for women uh, to join. Uh, there was an auxiliary feminine corps, uh, a French women volunteers corps. Um, these are so it's this diversity that I think is generally overlooked. Uh, in, in some histories of the resistance. So that's the external resistance, the Free French. So the, there is then the internal resistance, those groups operating within the, the country itself. Uh, and there are two types. There are networks. So these are intelligence gathering organisations. They're, they're relatively small. They, uh, they have agents who gather information on German military operations. And they are generally set up by people who are friends or who uh, are work colleagues. So, so one of the most famous is the, the Musée de l'Homme group in, in Paris, based at the, the Parisian Museum of Anthropology. So that's the networks. There are then the movements. So the movements uh, tend to be more about propaganda, about working on public opinion, and they tend to be larger uh, than, than the networks. Um, but like the Free French in the early years of the war, the networks and the movements are few and far between. So there, there are very few people who are willing to risk their neck uh, for, for, for the liberation of France, particularly in 1940, 1941, when it looks like Britain is going to be defeated um, and Germany is going to have this new order in Europe. It doesn't seem like the sensible thing to do to join a, a resistance a resistance group. Now, we have to also distinguish between the North and the South. So as I've mentioned previously, there are these two zones and it is, it is much more difficult to resist in the North than in the South because the Germans are there. The German military is there. The German security agencies are there. Um, there, there are much tighter restrictions on things like printing presses and printing materials. In the South, it's relatively freer to, to, to some extent than in the North, 
but it's less clear who the enemy is. So you have some early resistors in the South who want to resist the Germans, but they don't necessarily see Marshal Peyton and Vichy as the enemy. And they are perhaps suspicious of de Gaulle and what he wants to do um, for France uh, after the war. And that's a, that's another key area of division. What what does de Gaulle want? And do the political factions that found these movements, do they agree with de Gaulle? Do, do they trust him? Now, de Gaulle does succeed in uniting the resistance in uh, mid-1943. Uh, he does this through a man uh, called Jean Moulin, who is uh, a former government functionary, a prefect in France, who uh, took a, took it upon himself to travel around and gather information on the resistance movements and then travel to London to, to provide de Gaulle uh, with details. Uh, de Gaulle sent him back to, the, uh, to France with the mission to unite the movements with the promise of military and financial aid. And... Um, it's a complex tale, but it does eventually result in the, the establishment of a National Council for Resistance in, in May 1943. And they acknowledge de Gaulle as leader of the resistance inside uh, and outside France. So I think, uh, as you can see, it's a very complex, it's a very winding story uh, from the 18th of June 1940. Uh, de Gaulle giving this speech that no one really hears to De Gaulle becoming leader uh, of the resistance. It's not as easy as, and straightforward as I think a lot of people assume. Thank you very much for complicating it for us, but don't worry. I'm sure that everyone who picks up your book will be able to get a firm grasp on this. So now let's talk about the most controversial subject, which is French involvement in persecution against Jews and other groups. There are a number of questions that I want to ask you, and you can take them in whatever order you want and devote however much time you want. But I think some of the most important questions which have been asked over the past few generations are how much was the Vichy government and its people involved? What other groups aside from Jews were persecuted? Because after all, Jews are generally given the biggest focus during this time. But as your book notes, there was more than just the Jews that were being persecuted. And the final question is, on the one hand, uh, Vichy heavily attacked Jews, yet you argue that a high proportion survived relative to the rest of Europe. Why do you think that this is the case? Well, the the Vichy regime, first of all, is it's an anti-Semitic regime. Um, it's a regime. Uh, if it's defined by anything, it's defined by its uh, persecution and its repression, not just of Jewish people, uh, as you say, but of all the groups. But um, it's essentially an anti-Semitic regime that draws on quite a long history of anti-Semitism in France. Um, going back to the late 19th century with the, the divisions of the, the Dreyfus affair. Now, this uh, this historic anti-Semitism uh, from the 19th century combines in the, the 1930s with new anti-immigrant feeling caused by the economic crisis. And so there's a, an explosion of xenophobia in 1930s France, particularly expressed against Jewish refugees coming from Central and Eastern Europe. So there's this long history of anti-Semitism, which has been explored 
uh, by Robert Paxton and Michael Morris, who wrote the, the key work on this in, uh, in the early 1980s. Now, they showed that Vichy was under no pressure from Germany to implement anti-Semitic measures. It, its actions, notably its main legislation on the Jews, which were called the Jewish statutes, um, they, in part, they, they preempted what Vichy thought the Germans were going to do. So it preempted what it believed to be imminent German interference in French politics. But it also, as I said, in part spoke to indigenous anti-Semitism. Now, one of the things we should remember, too, is that Vichy is not necessarily interested in a final solution. To, to the Jewish question in the same way as the Nazis. So for Vichy, the Jews are uh, an annoyance or a nuisance to be gotten rid of. Um, they're also useful, though, as a bargaining chip in relations with the occupier. Uh, so so if the, Vichy thinks, well, if we can offer up a number of Jews for deportation, maybe this will please the Germans and maybe the Germans will make concessions. What it does allow is for some people, it gives free reign to the worst types of anti-Semitism from collaborationist groups like um, like those that bomb synagogues in Paris uh, during, during the occupation. Um, it also sees Vichy become ever more entangled in the Nazi timetable for the extermination uh, of the Jews. So v in 1942, Vichy is asked to provide a quota uh, of uh, of Jews for deportation, and this leads to roundups. Uh, the most infamous of which is the the Veldiv roundup in in July, uh, nineteen forty two, um, and and thousands of Jews are are then deported to Auschwitz. Um, now, one of the the things I wanted to to bring out about anti-Semitism at Vichy is that these laws were introduced throughout the empire. And in terms of its global reach, Vichy's anti-Semitism, we could say geographically it stretched farther around the globe than Nazi anti-Semitism. So as far away as Madagascar in Indochina, where literally there was a handful of European Jews, these Jews were nevertheless uh, persecuted. So, uh, for example, the, the Jewish statute of October 1940, which is passed uh, at Vichy, which outlines who is defined as a Jew and all the things that Jews can no longer do, all the professions that they can no longer practice. This is implemented in the empire in March uh, 1941. And the second statute of June 1941 is also introduced in colonial territories. So Jews lose their jobs. They suffer political and professional restrictions, just like their counterparts on the mainland. Um, and um, they find themselves excluded. So, so I think one of the things I wanted to get across is that Vichy exported this anti-Semitism around the world. Now, as for public support uh, for these measures, we can't deny that there was a lot of anti-Semitism in French society. Um, the evidence from the 1930s shows that xenophobia and anti-Semitism was high. If we look at the, the sales figures for anti-Semitic newspapers, they reached the, the, the hundreds of thousands, if not close to a million uh, sales figures or circulation figures for these anti-Semitic newspapers. According to 
Michael Morrison, Robert Paxton, the French of the the war years were largely indifferent to this anti-Semitism. They were only likely to raise concerns about it when it affected uh, them. So Morrison Paxton claimed there was an, an indifferent majority, which is quite a damning indictment uh, of the French. However, as you mentioned in the question, um, three quarters of Jews survive the war years. So we have this regime in Western Europe, which is very accommodating when it comes to anti-Semitism, very accommodating when it comes to Nazi demands for deportations. Yet we have three quarters of Jews surviving. Now we have to ask why. Well, after the war, apologists for the Vichy regime said that, well, Vichy had actually protected French Jews. Uh, they had only offered up, offered up foreigners for deportation. And th- that was that was true to a large extent. They, Vichy saw foreigners as expendable, but they didn't want to have the, the public relations disaster on their hands that the deportation of French Jews would have entailed. Um, but to argue that Jew, Jews survived because F- Vichy protected the French and gave up the, the foreigners, it, it, it's a morally dubious argument. Um, more recently, historian Jacques Simelan has brought to the fore French stories of rescue and the, the stories that of individuals who offered help to the Jews. And he says that this better explains the survival uh, of the Jews. Um, now, I think that there are better reasons to look for than, than those. We, we can't deny that many people did help. Uh, Jews. And indeed, there are many French among the righteous of the nations, um, this honour granted by uh, those who committed heroic acts to to save Jews during the Second World War. But we can't make the story of French anti-Semitism a story of the noble French saving the Jews, because we must admit that without the help that Vichy and the French gave the Nazis, they would have been able to deport far fewer than they actually did. So so roughly 80,000 were were killed during during the Second World War. I think that Morris and Paxton offer better explanations. So, for example, the geography of France made it easier to hide. Um, The country was liberated uh, sooner than other places, particularly in Eastern Europe, where the Holocaust was, was ramping up. And Hitler's plans were different in the West, so he didn't want to immediately cleanse the West of Jewish, the Jewish presence and Jewish influence like he did in the East, because he didn't conceive of the West as living space. So I think while we can't deny that many French helped the Jews, um, the fact that the fact is that without Vichy's help, the Germans would not have been able to deport as many Jews as they did. Um, and finally, the, it, we should stress too that it's, Vichy also persecutes other groups. So, uh, as I explain in the book, uh, there is uh, per- discrimination against gypsies, um, uh, the Roma and, and Sinti peoples in France. Uh, Vichy f- feels differently about gypsies. It wants, it thinks that it can convert gypsies into good French citizens through placing them in camps and through educating them in French values. 
Likewise, there is discrimination against homosexuals, but it's not the same as Nazi discrimination. So it does not seem to be as severe and uh, homosexuals are allowed to uh, live relatively freely. There are still uh, gay bars in Paris, for example. However, we should all we should always bear in mind that it was a, a time of discrimination against uh, this group too. And finally, Vichy discriminates against blacks, perhaps less explicitly than other groups, but this discrimination fits with its its broader racialized worldview of uh, a, a European white race at the at the top of what we might call the racial tree, and uh, and blacks at, at the bottom. Let's talk about liberation. Since your book takes a global stance, you examine how liberation meant many different things to the French Empire. In some cases, liberation meant repression. Why was that? Yes, one one of the things um, the book stresses is the complex ways that the French experienced liberation. Now, this is quite well known in terms of the liberation being a process. So we talk about the liberation of France as if it was an event, but it actually took a long time and it happened in different ways uh, throughout the country. But we frequently talk of the liberation of France without thinking about the liberation of its empire. So if we take a global viewpoint, we see that some areas were liberated by force of arms. Others uh, were liberated through the threat of armed action. Others were liberated not by the French at all, but by the British, for example, in Madagascar. And in places such as French Polynesia and the island of uh, Saint-Pierre et Miquelon, there was a referendum used to legitimise the the opting of the territory for de Gaulle. Yet rarely in these areas were indigenous peoples consulted And it could mean that there was actually striking continuity between life before and after the so-called liberation of these territories. So, for example, the African territories that opted to turn their backs on Vichy in August 1940, so French Equatorial Africa and uh, and Cameroon, which threw their lot in with de Gaulle uh, in August 1940, they were still ruled as colonial territories. And so Eric Jennings writes that that he says that if free France was African, Africa was not free. So under the governor of Chad, uh, Felix uh, Ebrouet, there was forced labour uh, of, of colonial peoples. And this forced labour intensified in much the same way that forced labour intensified under the Vichy regime in French West Africa. So colonial slave drivers in these free French territories exploited men, women and children, as well as prisoners and the sick for the collection of natural resources. So, And these were natural resources seen as essential to the war effort. So things like rubber in, in Cameroon. In, in Gabon, there was physical abuse in gold mines and uh, and wages were often withheld when the workers failed to fulfil their quotas. Um, now, only French citizenship could set you free from the injustices of colonial rule. Yet we see that in these lands, between August 1940 and March 1943, all requests for citizenship were refused. So, So overall, I think it's interesting that we have these free French lands in 
French Equatorial Africa and Cameroon, where indigenous peoples built thousands of miles of road, increased production in foodstuffs, uh, mined lead, zinc, produced leather and mined other precious metals, all aimed at, at the war effort against Vichy, um, yet all built on what we might call the blood, sweat and tears of colonial peoples. I think talking about the blood, sweat and tears of colonial peoples really offers a good segue into this next question, which is about World War II and the divided place in historical memory. I think you could essentially jump off of each of these, and I've gotten uh, a bit of hate mail, depending on which one of these I've talked about, but whether we're talking about the persecution of Jews or the repression of indigenous peoples in the empire, there does seem to be a divided and controversial memory of World War II that one author, whose name I shouldn't be forgetting, but I am, talked about uh, Vichy syndrome and the contested memory. Can you explain how there is a misremembering of the events of World War II in France? Yes, I think you're referring to Henri Rousseau, who who came up with the the idea of the Vichy syndrome. So he he said that this was a a pathological preoccupation with Vichy in France. Uh, and he wrote a he wrote a book called the Vichy syndrome and a second book uh, with Eric uh, Conan uh, which he which was called a, a past that does not pass so uh, Vichy is sort of this ever present um factor in French culture and politics in fact historian Richard Golson has said it's like the body in the basement um and uh, I, I in the book I call it the a, a zombie uh, stalking uh, French political and cultural life um the there are several it's recognized that there are several phases to the memory of the war since 1945 um largely based on what the work that Rousseau has done so he uh, argues that there was initially a decade of, of mourning, unfinished mourning, followed by uh, what he calls repressions, which coincides with a, a period of what's known as the, the resistance myth. So from the mid-1950s to the early 1970s, the dominant narrative of the war years was that the French had resisted in their majority, and those who had not resisted had supported the resistance. It's sometimes called the Gaullist resistance myth because uh, de Gaulle is uh, so central to it. And when he becomes president of the Republic in 1958, it's it's unassailable. that it, It's a very uh, comforting image of French conduct during the Second World War. Now, this is followed in the early 70s by a period of... Um, I suppose, self-flagellation and recognition that French conduct was not as noble as as was once thought. It's largely prompted by the book uh, Vichy France, Old Guard and New Order by Robert Paxton, who who was one of the first historians to uh, argue that actually French collaboration was was an indigenous decision. The French didn't have to do it. Um, but it drew on authoritarian impulses and anti-Semitic impulses present within France. It was not imposed by by the Nazis. And then this is followed in the 1980s by um, the emergence of Jewish memory. 
so again, thanks to the work of Paxton and Morris, uh, France's participation in the Holocaust uh, is is revealed. So these are generally thought to be the the ways in which memory has developed and changed the broad phases of the memory. But the one of the problems I was thinking about before writing the book was whenever I teach this topic, I can never I could never find anything that that could tell students what the 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 most recent phase of memory was. Um, so that's what I tried to do um, in the book to to look at the work that's been done in the last twenty years and and can we say that there is a new phase in history. Um, and, and I said it was a, a period of diversification and also revisionism. So by diversification, I may mean that there's a focus on previously underappreciated aspects of the war experience, uh, such as uh, the role of women and gender um, and, and empire, too. Uh, in, in particular, but there's also a, a change of methods for investigating this this history. So, the more historians are using oral histories or the history of everyday life to to get at uh, the historical detail uh, of the period. I also mention in the book video games. So, this is one way in which new media is communicating history to new audiences. So, the games like Call of Duty, which have uh, missions set in in, in France, where you can play as a resistor. These sell millions of copies, but, but previously in the past, historians only really take novels, popular literature and cinema as a way in which history is c communicated to audiences uh, beyond academia. But my point is surely we must take video games in, into account now too. Now, I also say it's a period of revisionism as well. Because that might be too strong a term, but there are certain authors who have begun to attack established histories in the field, um, such as important works by Morris and Paxton on anti-Semitism. And these authors set set up Morris and Paxton as an official history to be challenged. So, for example, Alain Michel uh, has written a book on Vichy's role in the Final Solution, saying it was ambiguous uh, because the regime had, act, he says, acted at once as executioner, but also as saviour. Um, Jacques Simelan, who I've mentioned before, has written about the 75% who who survived. And he claims that Morris and Paxton, uh, he says they totally concealed this. And he reframed the history uh, of uh, France and the Jews um, as a history of non-deportation of the Jews, uh, which underscored once again what, what he calls a social connection in France between Jews and non-Jews that counteracted the genocidal project of Vichy and the Nazis. There is this revisionism. Now, these historians have been rebuked by Paxton, Morris and, and for example, René Poznanski uh, for presenting too positive an image. And it, they, it has actually prompted uh, Morris and Paxton to re-release an edition of Vichy France and the Jews, their, their 1981 work, uh, with an updated riposte to, to this new history. So um, while I think it's welcome that there is diversification of the history of Vichy in the past 20 years, um, I find this revisionism of works such as Morris and Paxton uh, quite surprising. Now let us end by talking about you. How do you want to change the conversation 
about World War II in France? The book is aimed at a student audience and and beyond that, uh, a general reader. So I guess my mission when teaching students, and particularly those in the UK whose high school education centres on generally British and American history and Nazi Germany, and who have no language skills. What I want to do is to make them aware of France's place and importance in history. I'd like to get students thinking more carefully about the French and hopefully nurture an interest in France and its people. But as for changing the conversation about Vichy, I think there's two points, really. What I'd say is we... And it might seem quite an obvious point, but we can't address the history of the occupation now without considering questions of gender, race uh, and empire. And we can't do history anymore without considering the political, the social and the cultural aspects of a topic. And I hope that the book provides a basis for researchers to go off and do do this uh, in in several directions. Um, And the second thing, it's not necessarily necessarily changing the conversation, but I'd like to stress that there is still mileage in the, the more well-established aspects of the war, like collaboration, resistance and the Holocaust. These, I feel these have become less fashionable in, in recent years, but we can still approach them from new angles. For example, the, the imperial angle. And I still, still think they are central topics that, that we must consider when we're thinking about France and the Second World War. I want to thank you very much for being on our show, Dr. Millington. The book is France in the Second World War, Collaboration, Resistance, Holocaust, Empire. It has been a delight. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.